Father, we thank you so much for this morning, um, this time of the year to remember Jesus Christ being born, coming to this earth to save us, to live the righteous life that we could not live, to die and pay the penalty for our sins, that we can have this fellowship with you. And I pray as we have this fellowship with you that we this morning enjoy our fellowship with one another, that we encourage one another, love one another, and really focus our hearts and our minds and on worshiping you. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Go ahead and open up, if you will, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is, without a doubt, if I'm making like a top five list of favorite passages, Romans chapter 12 is, is really high on that list. Because you think about, first of all, what is Romans all about? Well, it's Paul's most thorough exposition of the gospel. And he starts with Romans chapters one and two, showing how all of us are condemned under sin. All of us are condemned. All of us are in need of a savior, whether Jew or Gentile. We're all um, slaves to sin in need of redemption. And God has accomplished, accomplished that redemption through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have been justified just as we've been learning in um, in uh, Galatians. And then from justification, Paul goes on to talk about our sanctification, that God doesn't just leave us where he finds us, but he redeems us, saves us, and begins to transform us with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then from justification, he talks about the ultimate destiny that we all have in Christ, which is our glorification when we no longer are subject to the effects of sin, the impact of sin. And, and so Paul moves us through um, a deep understanding of the, these gospel truths, justification, or you should start with our condemnation, then our justification, sanctification, and glorification. And when we get to chapter 12, we, are, we have our attention turned to what should our response be? How should our lives look because of these truths? And while chapter 12 is really where he makes that transition to talking about how our lives should respond to the, these gospel realities, he actually starts the response with the concluding verses of chapter 11. I love the way Paul concludes chapter 11, which I'll read for us in a moment here, because he's talking about the gospel and these truths, and it all just builds up to where he erupts into praise of God, glorifying God because of what he has done. Look at how he ends chapter 11. He starts in verse 32, God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. This gospel, we're all shut up in disobedience so that God can show mercy to all. And then he breaks out in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I, like, I love what Paul's saying there because he has spent... 11 chapters just talking about the greatness of the gospel and going into depth 
with the greatness of the gospel. Yet when he concludes chapter 11, he still ends with basically saying, hey, the greatness of this gospel is even just really beyond what we can put into words and comprehend. How unsearchable is the greatness of what God has done to us. And because of this salvation, chapter 12 begins with how should we respond? We have been purchased by God. We are owned by God. What should our lives look like? And the answer that we see clearly in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, where we'll spend our time this morning, is that our lives should be wholly set apart for God. Wholly set apart for God. 100%. And it really takes you back to... Jesus and what he taught about being his disciple, his invitation to follow him was always an invitation of 100% life commitment. You look at Matthew 10, 38, Jesus says, he who does take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Think about what Jesus is saying there, to take up a cross, that is full life commitment. That is 100%. When people went to the cross, it was 100% of their life that was taken. It's full life commitment. He, he, Luke echoes this, Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. Jesus called for 100% commitment. Often people would approach Jesus and say, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus would tell them, count the cost. Recognize that you don't partly follow me. You can't halfway be my disciple. It is a 100% life and death commitment. And that's what Paul shows us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So with that in mind, let's read these two verses. And there's really two parts here. Part 1, verse 1 sanctified bodies. Part two is verse two, sanctified minds. And when we talk about sanctification, there's really two different ways that you can take that word. And I think both are absolutely applicable here. There's what we call positional sanctification, meaning the moment you come to Christ, your position changes to where you are set apart. When we talk about sanctification, we are talking about being set apart from everything else for a purpose. As a follower of Christ, you've been sanctified, set apart for the purpose of serving God. Um, we'll talk about the utensils and the bowls and the, the things that were used in the temple. They were normal utensils, but they were sanctified, set apart for being used and glorifying and serving God. So as a Christian, there's positional sanctification. That moment you come to Christ, your life is moved from being outside the body of Christ to now set apart, sanctified from the world for the purpose of serving God. Paul, or God called the Israelites, come out from among the people and be separate. You are my set apart, sanctified people to serve me. So that's positional sanctification, but we also talk about progressive sanctification, that ongoing process of the Holy Spirit conforming us to the image of Christ, taking us from who we used to be and making us more and more like 
Jesus Christ. Both of those aspects of sanctification come into play when we talk about sanctified bodies and sanctified minds. And let's read these verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. He starts off here, sanctified bodies in verse one. And he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. The way he starts there with therefore, he's pointing us back to what he has outlined in chapters one through 11. It's because of the gospel, because of what has happened in your life through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Um, You can see this too, that he's talking to, he says in verse one, brethren, these are the people who have been redeemed by Christ. As we talk about the Christian life, and that's really what he does in chapters 12 through 16, is talk about what the Christian life should look like. He talks about all sorts of things. He talks about our relationship to government. Um, He talks about our relationship to authority in general. He talks about many aspects of the Christian life, but the key is he's talking to people who have been redeemed by Christ. In other words, Christianity is not just some moral system or philosophy that people can dabble in and try out. People do that with other philosophies. People do that with other systems and even religions. They say, hey, let me try this. Life isn't going too well for me. Let me go try this self-help approach or try this philosophy and see what kind of changes it makes in my life. But that's not what the Christian life is. What Paul is outlining for us only applies to those who have come to knowledge of the truth contained in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And it's those who have completely committed their life to following Jesus Christ. That's why he starts with the words, therefore, and the words, brethren. He's pointing back to the first chapter, 11 chapters, and um, giving this instruction to those who have committed to their life to following Jesus Christ. This life of sanctification and service to God is an outflow of what God has done for us. It's an outflow of this love we have for our Redeemer, which is very different from the obedience that we're used to in this world, right? If you think about the obedience that we're used to in this world, paying your taxes, do people pay their taxes out of a love for the government? Like, do people look at Capitol Hill and say, you know, I feel like these guys are being good stewards of my money. I'm going to give a little extra this year. No, nobody does that, right? Think about even the workplace. People are typically submissive to their boss out of not a love necessarily for their boss or even their job, but with a selfish goal or the ambition of promotion, the ambition of a good career. Christian obedience What Paul is talking about here, very different. 
very different. It flows out of a love for God and a response to what he has done to us, done for us. And Paul uses the words, I urge you. It's actually one word in the Greek. And it's an important word that Paul chooses here because certainly it carries the weight of authority, of a command, but it's also got the understanding of somebody who's gonna come along their fellow believer and be an encouragement and a helper to them in this obedience. It's not the command of somebody who is disconnected, a disconnected authority, but it is an exhortion from somebody who loves the brethren, is committed to the brethren. In fact, when Jesus in chapters 14, 15, 16 of John, the gospel of John, when Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit often as the helper. And it's actually the same word that Paul uses here. The, the Holy Spirit is our helper. Obviously as God, he is our authority, but he lives inside of us to enable the obedient life that he calls us to. He comes alongside of us and helps us. Paul's using that same word here. Paul's not writing to the Romans as a disconnected authority, but as an authority who loves them and is coming alongside them. And here's the command he gives them. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. It's the command for us too. As we read this, this is the same thing that Paul would say to all of us in this room. If you are a follower of Christ and you've accepted the first 11 chapters of Romans, then present your body a living sacrifice to God. What does that mean? If we're gonna live that out, what does it mean to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice? What he's saying here does not need to be mystical. It does not need to be magical or confusing. When he says, present your bodies, what he is talking about is your day-to-day existence. Whatever you do, whatever you do in your day-to-day existence, do it in the service of God. Do it as a worshiper of God. So when you go to work, go to work as a worshiper of God serving God, looking for ways to glorify him in the workplace, looking for opportunities to present the gospel in the workplace. When you go to school, in your relationships, whatever you do in your day-to-day physical existence, do it to the glory of God. Thinking of ways, how can I honor God in these circumstances? If it's sickness that God has brought you through, Present your body as a living and holy sacrifice to God. How can you handle that sickness in a way that honors God? In a way that shows people that the Lord is your number one priority and that this earth is not your final destination, but his kingdom. How can you minister to those who are around you sharing the gospel? 
That's what it means to present your body a living and holy sacrifice. It's about your life being set apart for the purpose of God. And what is a sacrifice? The Old Testament teaches us a lot about what a sacrifice is. And it's like I've said, a 100% commitment. Go look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament. There were no wounded sheep, right? No wounded goats. It was 100% of their life that was given to the worship of God. There's no such thing as a halfway sacrifice. Your body as a Christian has been set apart, sanctified for the service and worship of God. Paul explains this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He tells them, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. Your physical existence is owned by God now. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify, glorify God in your body. It's a living sacrifice. It's an ongoing thing. Um, Luke 9, 23, I read that earlier. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. It's a day in and day out experience of waking up in the morning and saying, looking ahead at your day and saying, God, how can I serve you? With whatever you have put on my calendar, be it school, work, difficult things, easy things, whatever it may be, how can I glorify you? How can my life be a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, holy again, that, that sanctification, that meaning being set apart for the purpose of serving God. I go back to the temple in the Old Testament, how you would have, say, a gold bowl in there. And sure, it was gold. It represented the purity and the glory of being set apart for the service of God. But it was a bowl, right? Yet it wasn't a bowl that could just be used for any purpose. This bowl had been sanctified, set apart for the purpose of glorifying and worshiping God. There was nothing in and of itself that was special. If you broke down the chemical composition, it was a gold bowl just like any other gold bowl. But what made it special was that its purpose was for nothing other than worshiping God. Think of your life that way, you know? In and of, your, in and of ourselves, there's nothing special about us, right? We are people, flawed people, just like anybody else. But in Christ, our purpose has been radically changed. This, it says, is acceptable to God in verse one. I love it when the Bible simplifies life because so often we talk about what's God's will? What's God's will for my life? And far too often we make that way more complicated of a concept than it needs to be. We think about a big decision that's coming up and we think, okay, I've got to get into this mystical process now of discerning God's will. No, 
Absolutely not. Go read through the New Testament and every single time it talks about God's will for our life, this is what it is. Living a life for, of obedience and glorifying him. Paul told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, your ongoing progress and growing in Christ's likeness. Jesus, people were normal people, concerned about the necessities of life, just like any of us. And Jesus said, hey, 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 sir, see first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these other details, the father takes care of them. When it comes to God's will for our lives, repeatedly the New Testament simplifies it to this. This is acceptable to God. Just live a life set apart for serving him. This is what the sacrifice is that is acceptable to God. And 99% of the decisions we have to make in life, the Bible tells us very, very clearly how we're to live, what decisions we're supposed to make. 99%. And sure, are there 1% of the time? Is there 1% of the time where it's like, you know, I don't really know what God wants me to do here. Should I take this job or this job? Should I live here or live here? Should I go to this school or that school? But wouldn't you think if you're living your life according to the wisdom of God and striving to be obedient to God, when you get to those 1% decisions that are, you know, you could go either way, you can trust God's sovereign care and loving care for your life to guide those decisions, right? So often we do it the opposite way where, you know, we live 99% of our lives not caring what God has to say, just doing whatever we want. And then one of those 1% decisions comes up and all of a sudden we really want God's role here, you know? We really want God to show us whether or not we should buy this house. Yet you don't care what he says 99% of the time? You got it backwards, flip that around. Follow the 99% he's shown you and I promise you're gonna be okay in that 1%. This is God's will for our lives, to be a living and holy sacrifice. He concludes verse one, talking about our sanctified bodies, that this is our spiritual service of worship. It's kind of an interesting translation. I've never known or figured out exactly what they're, because we just think of spiritual in a different way there. Um, I think a much better translation, and actually if you have the New King James or the King James, or even in your margins, it probably tells you, this is our reasonable service of worship. Uh, the Greek word there is the word logic, basically, where we get the word logic. And what he's saying here, this is your logical service of worship. This is the logical response of somebody who understands the truths of the gospel. If you know what God has done for you from chapters one through 11, this is the logical, reasonable response here, which is a contrast to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. When that goat, that ram was led to be slaughtered in worship of God, did the ram have any intellectual involvement 
and worshiping God in that process? No, it was an animal being led to where it was led and being blindly sacrificed for purposes. It's got no idea what's going on, but it's different for us as followers of Christ. Our offering of our lives as a sacrifice to worship God and serve God this is done from a heart of love. This is done from a heart responding to what God has done for us. This is our spiritual, reasonable, logical service of worship. So verse one is all about our sanctified bodies. But like we've already talked about, this sanctified outward life, this outward life lived to worship God and serve God starts at a deeper level. It starts inside our hearts, inside our minds. So that's where he goes in verse two. In verse two, he goes to talk about our sanctified minds. Uh, and the Bible is saturated with verses, with passages on our hearts and our minds. It's very important to God what is going on inside of us because it flows out into our outward lives, right? Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus repeatedly taught these principles. Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Matthew 15, 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Luke 6, 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And so for us to have sanctified bodies, as verse one calls us to, we're going to have to have sanctified hearts and minds. Hearts that have been set apart to dwell on, to love, to grow in the truth of God. That's what verse two is all about. Sanctified minds. And he gives us a negative command. Here's what you should not do. And then he gives us a positive command. Here's what you should do. So often that's Paul's approach to the Christian life. Put off these things, put on these things. And he says in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Like I said, he starts telling us, here's what you should not do. Do not be conformed to this world. This world has many, many ways of thinking that are directly contrary to the truth of God. And as people living in this world, we feel the pressure to conform we feel the pressure to conform because the world is around you constantly telling you you're wrong. Not only are you wrong, you're dumb, you're foolish. Like, how could you possibly believe these things? The world pressures us to accept their philosophies, but that's because temporarily God has given Satan control in this world. 
Satan spreads his lies and the world grabs onto it. The world hates truth, hates light, loves the lie and loves darkness. But as long as we live on this earth, we are in this world, right? Jesus said, hey, don't be of the world, but as long as you're in this world, you're gonna be in it. And the natural reality is we are going to feel that pressure to be conformed. That pr- the, the world has a mold of what it thinks you should look like, how it thinks you should live. And it's gonna try to press you into that mold. And if you fight against it, you're intolerant, you're hateful perhaps in their words, you're foolish. And the truth is, if you hear that nonstop thrown at you, you can start to question yourself sometimes, right? Like, hmm, you gotta go back to the truth day in and day out. It's uh, Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age. Don't be conformed to this world. When it comes to your way of thinking, don't take your ways of thinking from this world. The philosophies, your morals should not come from this world. Because if you belong to Christ, you may be in this world, but you are not of it. You belong to him who redeemed you. And so he says, don't be conformed to this world. Now here comes the positive. Where are you to get your thinking from? Where are you to get your philosophies and your morals? Well, you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your renewing of your mind with God's truth. That word transformed, it's the word we get metamorphosis from. It's a transformation that the Holy Spirit creates within us. God is so merciful and so loving that when he redeemed us, he chose to come live inside of us and change us and give us new hearts and minds with new capabilities. Isn't that remarkable? Outside of Christ, you can't understand the things of God. Go read 1 Corinthians 2. The world tells us the things of God are foolish because to them it is foolishness. They can't get it. Apart from the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you would think it was foolishness too. But our minds are transformed by the indwelling Holy Spirit that 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, allows us to look at his word and understand it and see truth. It happens through the word of God dwelling within us richly. That's what Paul told the Colossians. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the word of God. It's the Bible. Uh, Again, the same way living out your life with your body, being a living and holy sacrifice, that wasn't mystical or mysterious. Neither is the transforming of your mind. I mean, in a sense, it's mysterious because it's the Holy Spirit, it's God inside of you doing it, which is interesting, but your role in the process, not mysterious. It is about applying your life and your mind to the word of God, making it a priority in your life. 
saturating your life with it, reading it every day, memorizing it, meditating on it, asking God to help you be obedient to it, repenting when you fall short of being obedient to it. There's no, mystery. There's no mystery. It's applying your life to the word of God or applying the word of God to your life, both, whatever it is. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I love that. I love the way 17 ends there. Because I don't know about you, but I always have a fear in life of being inadequate. Maybe it's because I so often find myself to be inadequate, right? Whether it's at work, school, whatever. There's always a standard and you always find yourself falling a little short. But when it comes to serving our Lord, what really matters, he equips us and he makes us adequate for every work that he calls us to do through his word and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. It's just amazing to think of the grace of God in our lives. And of course, God does use external circumstances and external things to shape and mold us, right? He brings people into our lives, circumstances into our lives, um, things that change us. And he's using all those things to um, make us into who he wants us to be. You think of Romans 8, 28, God works all things to the good of those who loved him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And as you read that verse in context, you realize that the good things that Paul's talking about there is our transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So he uses circumstances and all these things, but the primary driving force that the Holy Spirit is gonna be used in your life is the word of God. You cannot grow in Christ-likeness and in who God wants you to be apart from committing yourself to his truth, to his word. These sanctified minds have, like we said, the natural outflow of a changed life. He says in verse one, so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That will of God comes up again and I get excited about it because as a young person, I thought of God's will for my life as like a very mysterious thing. I'm like, I don't know, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Am I going to the right school, taking the right job, living in the right place? And you're always nervous, right? Like, oh, am I gonna miss it? Am I gonna get outside of God's plan for my life? And then everything's gonna start going wrong. But no, this is God's will for our life to live out those things which are good and acceptable and perfect. And they're not things that he's hiding from us. They are things he has clearly given us in his word. God doesn't play games with us. He doesn't hide from us, but he speaks to us clearly through his word. So how do we apply these verses? Again, I tell you, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, although I'd probably have to tack verse 32 of 11 on down through chapter 12, verse two, top five favorite passages for me. I love it. 
I love just how powerful the response to the gospel is, how clear it is what God has called us to do in response. So my first point of application though would be, Paul is talking to the brethren here. He is talking to those who are in Christ. So the first point of application is have you believed the gospel of chapters one through 11? Because like I said, Christianity isn't like a lot of self-help books out there or a lot of diet books or a lot of exercise books. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna pick this up and try it out. See what happens. See if I get anything from it. Christianity doesn't work that way. The call of the gospel is a call to follow Christ with 100% of your lives. Jesus Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. And again, nobody got wounded on a cross, right? It was death. It was a 100% commitment. And so if you are here and thinking of the Bible or Christianity or God as just something you can try out or dabble in, you can't. The call is to examine the gospel, examine what Paul says in chapters one through 11, that you, like all of us, are helpless in sin, enemies of God, but that Jesus Christ, the one we celebrate at Christmas, came to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die to pay the penalty that we could not pay so that you can become a child of God. And this process of sanctification begins the moment you believe and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. And then you move to chapter 12 and you say, okay, now how does God want me to live my life? For us who are in Christ, it's application. Application of this call to a life of worship to a life as a living sacrifice. Part one, remembering it begins with the mind. Don't go ignoring the truths of God, not giving the, the scripture the place in your life that it deserves. Don't go about just trying to live out following a set of rules, morality, apart from relying on the Holy Spirit, because then you just fall into legalism and failure and discouragement. It starts in the heart and it starts in the mind and it starts in a commitment to the word of God. One of the questions I asked the youth last week in, the, in Sunday school was, if you look at the habits of your life as it comes to the word of God, as it relates to the word of God, what does that reflect on the priority you have for God's word? Like how important is it? For them, it's like video games, right? Like if you spend six hours a day playing video games and no time in God's word, how does that reflect on what you truly believe about God's word and the priority that it really has in your life? For us, it might not be video games, but there's plenty of other things, right? Like how do the habits of our life reflect on what we truly believe about the word of God? Because if this is the word of God, 
And this is the infinite creator of the universe talking to us, showing us how we're to live the life that he's called us to. It should saturate our lives and it should have a very, very high priority where we really don't want a day going by where we're not reading God's word, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it. Because that inner transformation, like I said, has a very real impact on how we live our lives. Live for the Lord. When you start thinking about your body as a living sacrifice, think through the components of your life. How do you glorify God in those things? Work, school, your relationships, children, friends, your parents. We live in this world and God has left us in this world to be ambassadors for him and to glorify him. Reflect on your life. How are you doing that? How are you doing that? And all the different components of life that God has given you, how are you using those for his kingdom to worship him and to glorify him? Our life is about being a living sacrifice. It's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible privilege to think that the God of this universe has chosen to save you and make you his own. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your mercy and your love for us. Just these incredible realities that you have chosen us to be your children. And I pray that every day we would be overwhelmed with that reality and those truths and that you would give us the wisdom to know how to live our lives to honor you, to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you, um, in a way that brings you glory and uh, just continue to grow us in those things. As we go forward this morning, just help us to love one another and encourage one another and worship you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.